You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Well, hello, everybody. I'm starting us off this week with a biological mystery story that is at least 2,400 years old. What? Oh, I love it. Yeah. All right. All right. I'm intrigued. Let's go. A- Aristotle wrote about this fish. Whoa. Oh, it's a and fish. Was, it's a fish. And was okay. confounded by the fact that it seemed to have no reproductive organs, was never observed to mate, and was never seen to hatch from eggs. Awesome. I think I know about this. Oh, my gosh. This is so cool. <laughs> okay. Keep going. Yeah, it's also found in all kinds of freshwater environments, including ones where it would seem a fish has no business, like Uh ephemeral ponds, uh, that is ponds that disappear for part of the year, and Uh bodies of water that are cut off from any river. Aristotle thought that they were, quote unquote, born of earthworms and spontaneously generated from wet soil. (laughs) Okay, okay. He was wrong, just... Headline. Really? Was he? Spoiler. But I can, knowing, knowing already what you're talking about, I can see, I can see why someone would think that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But exactly. You, you can see why someone would think this. I'm going to talk about it. I am talking about eels. Eels. Yes. I love eels. Nice. I can't believe it took to episode 60 to get the eels. I know. No, 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 no. I talked are. about moray eels. It's true. But you're it's true. You did. This is these are freshwater eels. eels. But this was actually one where I was like, I can't believe nobody's done this yet. And this Uh is one where I'm genuinely a little afraid that it's gonna be that that time when somebody comes with two of us come with the same topic. Mm -hmm. But no. So there are two closely related species that I'm gonna talk about: the European eel and the American eel. Mm -hmm. Of course, the European eel was the one that Aristotle was talking about, but they have very similar life histories. So it it turns out uh, the there are various reasons that the eel was so mysterious and Mm -hmm. we know about them now. So it undergoes metamorphosis. And so the different life stages uh, seem like different types of animals. So cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I know I, Oh, keep going. (laughs) Rachel's really excited folks. I'm withholding so much. I'm just go. (laughs) It's migratory. So it's born in the sea it spends the rest of its life in freshwater and then it returns to the sea to mate and die. It does not develop its reproductive organs until its final migration. And it can travel over land when necessary and hibernate in mud until awakened by water coming back into its habitat. That's insane. And there's other cool stuff, but mainly I want to talk about how how people figured out that the eel is the eel and where it Mm -hmm. comes from. Uh, So many people over many centuries gradually put the pieces together. And so I am going to sum up their knowledge in what we know now about the weird life cycle of these eels. So when thousands of years of knowledge coming at it. Yes. 
more like 300, but yeah. Okay. Yeah, we, we already learned about Aristotle's knowledge. Well, he tried. <laughs> right. Well, okay, fair enough. So when an eel hatches, it is a tiny transparent larva that's about two inches long, or maybe even a little Ooh. smaller. It's And it's um, completely see-through and flattened laterally, so side to side. So it looks a bit like a see-through leaf. And okay. it's, a, it's called a leptocephalus. And these can drift on the ocean currents then toward the shores of North America and the Caribbean or toward Europe, depending on which species it is. Mm -hmm. And then by the time they reach the inlets of rivers, they have become uh, more eel-like in shape, still only a few inches long, and they're still transparent. And they're called a glass eel at that point. Yes. So people knew about glass eels, but they didn't know they were connected to the next stage. Okay. Which is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, there's a kind of a, a smaller version of an adult, an adult eel called an elver. So as they start to swim up the mm-hmm. river, they're called an elver. And then as they grow into kind of the mature eels that hang around in fresh water, they are known as yellow eels because they're kind of a yellowish mm-hmm. brown color. And these were the ones that were most familiar to inland people and were very frequently eaten. Right. Okay. So then after spending approximately five to 20 or sometimes longer years in the freshwater due to some signal that is still than I thought it would be. Okay. Yeah. They're very long lived fish. Um, they, they still don't know what the signal is that causes an eel to metamorphose into its final stage. Um, but there's some, Hmm. some signal they change a final time into silver eels so that their, their color changes again. They lose their stomachs. And travel oh, on their what? fat reserves. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and their reproductive organs then develop, finally. Okay. Right. Just, I got good news and I got bad news. Yeah. <laughs> on the plus side, you get to go on a trip. On the downside, <laughs> you don't get any food. Yeah. So then they migrate back to the place that they were born. Okay. But where is that place? Uh, <gasps> oh, oh, yeah, that's true. Rachel knows. Rachel knows. I do. Kirk knows. I know. Okay, well, it was very difficult to figure out. that was a big out. mystery. It was, it was very <laughs> difficult huge. to figure out. And, you know, the, the silver eels would leave. The glass eels would come back. How do you track a tiny fish in a small ocean? And <laughs> most of our knowledge... On this comes thanks to an early 20th century Danish biologist named Johannes Schmidt. Uh, and that's that's how I say it in German. I don't know how the Danes say <laughs> it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the Danish say it very similar as a as a Danish person. Not that, that means anything. Thank you, Rachel. Mm-hmm. So starting in 1904, he sailed out first into the Mediterranean, which is where they initially thought the eels went, and then into the Atlantic, and he just over and over again would cast nets into the water, haul them up and see if he could find eel larvae. And Mm. he would record the size and location of all the larvae he found. And he, he contracted like commercial trawlers to do this for him as well, just year after year. And finally, by 1920, he tracked down the tiniest larvae of all newly hatched, teeny tiny cute baby eels in the Sargasso sea. Yeah. Yeah. So the Sargasso Sea is unlike all other seas in that it's not bounded by any land masses. Mm 
It's mm-hmm. a, just a part of the Atlantic Ocean. It's pretty, it's pretty far east of the southeastern United States. Um, but it's actually, it's bounded by ocean currents. It's a gyre. So there are currents that sort of swirl around it on all sides. And it's kind of, you can think of it as a bit of a still spot in the ocean. Mm-hmm. And there's a particular kind of seaweed called sargass- sargassum that grows there. And it provides cover for different life forms, including baby eels. So since 1920, the Sargasso Sea has been believed to be the spawning and hatching grounds of the Atlantic eels. But mm-hmm. here's the thing. In spite of a lot of biologists trying very hard using modern tracking and sampling methods, no one has ever seen a mature eel in the Sargasso Sea, nor found mm-hmm. an eel egg there or anywhere yep. else. Right. So it's like so uh-huh. frustrating. You're like, okay, pretty sure it's over here, but I can't. I can't prove it. <laughs> and 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 point of clarification, it's believed that eels from both Europe and North America go both go to the correct. Sea, right? Yeah, and actually, as a as a side note, for a while in the kind of mid to late twentieth century, there was there were some scientists who actually believed that they were the same species that just hmm. had some um, like body variations based on the conditions that they. We're, we're maturing in. Oh, sure. But then yeah, yeah, yeah. once they did genetic analysis, they figured that they are actually yeah. separate species. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. But they did diverge not that long ago, ev- evolutionarily speaking. Sure. But there is still this big eel mystery, which is, uh, it's, it's frustrating, but it's also just so cool that there's, there's this, we still there's still don't this know. mystery out there. It's a big ocean. It's, it's a, a big huge ocean. ocean. And like, it's, but, it's have they been able to like follow the 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 silver eels at all or no? Yeah, so there have been tracking studies. And what I want to talk about next actually is somewhat related to that. So I read a very interesting paper that was published um, on October 6th, 2020 by Yulin K. Cheng and colleagues mm-hmm. in uh, it's in it was in Nature's peer-reviewed open access journal called Scientific Reports. At any rate, it's called New Clues on the Atlantic Eels Spawning Behavior and Area, the Mid-Atlantic Ridge Hypothesis. Interesting. So there's a lot in the paper. Oh, whoa. Okay, okay. Yeah. Overall, the paper suggests that the Sargasso Sea may may not be the main or the only spawning ground for the eels. Oh. Huh. So it kind of takes its, its point of comparison as the Japanese eel which is a somewhat, it's a fairly similar species in its life cycle. And it was first thought to breed much closer to Japan, but they went through a similar process of tracking down the larvae in the Mm -hmm. Pacific Ocean. And the spawning grounds were eventually discovered and confirmed um, to be along an oceanic ridge in the Western Pacific that was much farther than they initially thought. And the, the kind of, you wonder like, it's just a point in the ocean. It's not the Sargasso right. Sea. How does the eel navigate there? Well, they think that the eels, because they, um, they come up to the surface at night and they go down during the day, and so they can sense different chemicals in the water column that could come up from oceanic ridges or different temperature changes. And then so that's the north-south marker, and then the east-west marker is a salinity gradient. Okay. Oh, okay. For the for these Japanese eels, 
So their hypothesis is that for the Atlantic eels, um, there is a different spawning location that's at the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, and where the two plates separate, and yep, yep. Uh, mm-hmm. a, a salinity or temperature gradient for those two coordinates. Let's get a boat. Yeah, so they Let's have a couple go. of pieces of evidence this is based on. Um, one of them was that based on tracking of actual silver eels, the silver eels don't go the direct route that you would assume if they were just kind of heading straight mm-hmm. to the Sargasso Sea. They all rendezvous at the Azores, which are a group of islands along the Mid-Atlantic Ridge at about the latitude of southern Portugal. Okay. Okay. And then they kind of can't, it seems like I don't think they were able to track them after that. Mm-hmm. Huh. Uh, so that they, so these researchers think that they use that as, as a starting point and then they follow the ridge to the point where the salinity is at the right, or temperature at the right place. Um, but then they used computer and there were some other pieces of evidence too, but then they used computer modeling to release virtual larvae from the Sargasso Sea and from this proposed new location. And they found that based on where the virtual larvae drifted to on the virtual mm-hmm. ocean currents. Um, yeah, yeah. The ones that were released from this mid-Atlantic ridge location actually better matched up with the actual locations of real eel larvae than if they released the virtual larvae from the Sargasso Sea location, cool. if you're following me. Huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally following. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so, like, obviously there is a lot of work that would have to be done to determine if this is in fact uh, true. You know, they'd have to actually send research vessels out to this area. It's further, further east and further, um, I think maybe a little bit further south of the Sargasso Sea. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's, it's a really intriguing idea. And, you know, if, if true would partly explain why nobody's found the adult eels or the eggs. Right, yep. maybe they're just going, they're kind of going through the Sargasso Sea on their way yeah. elsewhere or something. Like mm-hmm. that. That's cool. Maybe it's I think they were not suggesting that there's no spawning in the Sargasso Sea because of the size of the larvae that they found there are so small that they think oh, okay. they have to have just hatched. Mm. Okay, cool. But still. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost more surprising if they only hatch in one specific spot yeah. versus having several. Mm-hmm. And they, they also think that the American eels in this... European eels may have slightly different spawning locations, as you might expect. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, the European eel is critically endangered, and the American eel is endangered. Um, yeah. No one knows all the reasons, but overfishing, pollution in the Sargasso Sea, also in pollution in freshwater, and a mm-hmm. lot of dams built on their rivers uh, all contribute. Right. Yeah. yeah. Damn dams. Yeah. <laughs> And once again, I end my section on a down note, but uh, thank you. And when we come back from the break, we're going to have Kirk. Strange by Nature podcast is brought to you by listeners like you 
who have joined the Society of Strange, our membership group on over at patreon.com slash strangebynature. Society of Strange members can join at one of three different membership levels and help support the show and also get some fun stuff like water bottle stickers or access to a super secret content. So a thank you to those who have joined already to help make this podcast possible. If you haven't joined yet, we'll see you soon over at the Society of Strange at patreon.com slash strange by nature see you soon all right so my topic this week is strange uh, but you have to wait until the very end for the truly strangest part mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm taking us on a journey through time we're headed back to the 1840s okay so not as far uh, back okay. as 2400 years ago got it no not and as far back I, as some of the other journeys you've taken us on that's very much very much true this was you know if you think about it like so just to kind of place us in in time here here in north america uh we had the mexican-american war uh california became a state and by the end of the decade we had the gold rush in california Mm -hmm. this is the decade where the saxophone wasn't created apparently oh okay Uh, kind of cool huh uh more recent than i would have thought uh carl marx was writing his communist manifesto napoleon bonaparte was the first president of france my ancestors were poor goat farmers in Norway and Sweden. And down in Rachel's favorite continent, Australia, <laughs> something uh-huh. strange is being seen for the very first time. Okay. And that something was camels. Oh. Oh, I'm sorry. Whoa, 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 whoa. Camels in Australia. Camels. Right. Doesn't sound right, does it? Why are camels in Australia? Were they well, brought that's there? that's a great question. <laughs> uh, they were brought there. And okay. there are, if you look online, conflicting reports on where these camels came from. So one source I looked at said that they were imported from India, mm-hmm. uh, while the official government website of the Northern Territories of Australia claims they were brought from the Canary Islands, which seems mm-hmm. bizarre and strange in and of itself. Um, so I did some digging on this, and apparently the camels that are in Australia right now and there are camels in Australia to this day, uh, are mostly huh. from the Middle East, India, and Afghanistan. Okay. And the very first the very first camel, though, was part of a shipment of three uh, that did come from the Canary Islands. And for those of you who don't know where that is, they're a little more than like about 60 miles off the coast of Morocco mm-hmm. on the western side of uh, Africa out in the Atlantic Ocean. So like probably like the least convenient spot you can possibly imagine to ship camels to australia uh-huh. from that's about as far yeah. away to find camels to bring them to australia <laughs> much, yeah. I mean, it's the longest they must have been have made brought to the canary islands themselves at some point you know i i'm not sure uh, on the history of camels in the canary islands but i uh, will just say hashtag british and leave it at that yeah. <laughs> um yep so um Predictably, uh, only one of them survived the trip. Although, mm-hmm. predictably, I would have thought none of them would have made it. But one of them uh, did survive. His name was Henry. Or no, not Henry. Sorry, it's Harry. His name was Harry. Harry the and camel. Harry <laughs> the camel. Yeah, it's, it's great. Uh, Harry holds another distinction besides being the first camel ever in Australia. Um, he's also known uh, primarily for the fact that he shot his owner and rider. Hold on, what? How? Well, maybe this is a little bit of hyperbole, but John Ainsworth Horrocks uh, was an explorer in Australia, and he was, uh, you know, like, thought it was really great to use these camels to do 
um, exploring, mm-hmm. uh, which is why, you know, what's why they wanted to bring camels uh, to Australia I in mean, the first place. I mean, they're use... good in the outback, I would I assume. Yeah, I, they, it's, they're, they're, they're very, very well adapted to Australia, mm-hmm. um, even though they're not from there. And apparently, um, John uh, Horrocks uh, was trying to uh, shoot a bird one day, and his camel, Harry, uh, moved and somehow horribly uh, caused Horrocks' gun to go off. <gasps> and the shot blew off several of his fingers <laughs> and an entire row of teeth. Oh. Where was the gun pointing? I, well, I think he was like cleaning it or Jostled loading his it or elbow. like that. Uh-huh. Yeah, and um, now he did end up dying 23 days later. Mm-hmm. And he requested that uh, uh, Harry the Camel be shot, <gasps> which I think is is pretty petty. Right? That's yeah. so if petty. Li- like, it's not the camel's but, uh, fault. I, apparently, the camel was. So it's clear that the camels there today did not come from Harry. Um, other camels were eventually imported. It's estimated that there were like thousands that were imported into the country mm-hmm. um, you know, because they thought they would be good for exploring the continent. And there were breeding programs set up as well to purposely raise and maintain these for transportation. It was quite a big industry. Yeah. Uh, but all things you know come to an end, and the automobile being <laughs> the automobile, yeah, and brought in or and other types of mechanized transportation really brought the whole camel breeding and and raising to an end in Australia. Mm-hmm. But some of those breeders, when they were done, just sort of. Let them go uh, and turn them loose into the wild. So uh-huh. we now have feral camels out there wandering around and they're doing uh, very well. So if we flash Good. forward to modern times, uh, camels have gone feral. Uh-huh. By 2008, there were an estimated 1 million wild camels in Australia. That's a lot of and camels. The government uh, decided to spend a whopping 19 million Australian do- dollars. <laughs> to try to reduce the population. Uh-huh. For reference, that's about that's a little bit less than 14 million U.S. dollars. Uh, and the one million number, you see it thrown around, but it may actually be kind of high because I know by the time they got around to actually organizing and carrying out this control, it was 2013. And they did like another survey and estimate and it came up with a number of 600,000 camels. Mm. Um, <laughs> and they were able to bring that population down. Uh, through some like hunting programs and some roundups and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And they estimated they got the population down to about 300,000 that are still out there. Okay. But it's an ongoing struggle because if left unchecked, the population, you know, they're breeding out there uh-huh. and it goes up by about 10% per year. Wow. Right? So yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. Uh, on the whole, camels are seen as a pretty destructive force in the wilds of Australia. There are a couple things that maybe they... Kind of help with, but mm-hmm. um, they they are often destructive. Um, one fascinating fact is that they can smell water from up to five kilometers away. Wow! Uh, and they will seek it out, and they've known to be pretty destructive when trying to get to that water, huh. whether it be like a natural source of water that they then you know foul up, or even like just just literally destroying people's property to get at water. Huh? And so they can cause huh. quite quite a problem, and uh, and also a real problem for the environment. They found that like. Um, they will eat 80% of the plant varieties present. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean they'll eat 80, like denude the land by 80%, but 80% of the species that they could eat are edible to the camel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yikes. Now, That's a lot. if you remember I mentioned the population goes up by 10% per year. Well, 
currently there's no budget to keep culling them on a large scale. And there's mm-hmm. some little small roundups and stuff that happen, but nothing on the big on big level. So a 10% increase per year, uh, I believe, means the population will then double every 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. And so since the big cull was in 2013, to kind of do the math, that means like... We're almost the there. May, we're almost basically back to that 600,000 number we started with. So... Mm. Yikes. Um, now, there's lots of strange parts to this story and directions I could go, but the thing that caught my eye and I really wanted to share with you that mm-hmm. was the especially strange thing with this was a relatively recent proposal for how to get the money to control the population. Okay. And the solution proposed was to sell carbon offsets. What? Okay. Right. To, to get what? rid of camels. Here's the deal, right? Every camel not only causes ecological degradation, but also produces methane mm-hmm. in the form of burps and farts. Right, because right. it's, and, it's a ruminant. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a ruminant, right? And so each camel produces about 100 pounds of methane per year. Now, you'll notice, though, that I said carbon credits or carbon mm-hmm. offsets, not methane credits. But methane is a much more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide right 100 pounds of methane is the same as 2500 pounds of co2 Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i did a little math on this a camel can live up to 50 years so culling one camel could save the equivalent over its lifetime of 125,000 pounds of co2 from the atmosphere wow nice which is impressive so a company called northwest carbon uh, has proposed that they will shoot camels from a helicopter and then sell the meat for pet food. Mm-hmm. And the saved carbon or the equivalent in methane could then be sold or traded on the open market as carbon offsets hmm. and carbon credits. Uh, so it's a completely bizarre idea. Yeah. But may, may actually be an interesting way to fund the control of feral camels. Yeah. And help reduce global warming at the same time. That's kind of brilliant. <laughs> it's it's so weird. I actually, when I first thought of doing this, <laughs> this, this episode, I was like, well, maybe I could do one on unique carbon offsets. Mm-hmm. Offsets Like, this is like the weirdest one, but maybe there's other weird ideas out there. This, no. There, there's no. Nothing, everything <laughs> is, is very like, we're going to plant trees. We're going to, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. this is like, let's shoot camels. So it's like, <laughs> it is... It's it's completely bizarre and strange, and I, I, yeah. I knew it, it had to make it onto the show. That's a bizarre uh, Some of the information go, yeah. I got uh, for this, by the way, I want to give a shout out, was there was an article on live science that had uh, some some numbers and things I was looking at. Also, the, um, the Northwest Territories website of the government of Australia, and then just some general um, numbers and things I got from good old Wikipedia. So thank you to all those sources, and that's the strange corner of the earth i have for you this week mm. all right cool. thanks kirk thank you let's uh let's take a break and when we come back i want to hear um, i, I want to hear what rachel's got i'm excited are you excited <laughs> i'm excited we'll be back we'll be back in a couple seconds here we go imagine you are a german botanist in 1902 and you make yeah. a discovery in australia <laughs> oh there it is. what a surprise <laughs> oh I, I can't believe that you would talk about australia on the show who would have guessed 
Um, so you send it back to the Berlin herbarium, um, but no one seems to really take notice of your discovery. Uh, the flower itself is pretty simple. Uh, it's like a cream rose color. It's not really big. It's pretty small. So your discovery kind of goes unnoticed. And then, Mm -hmm. um, you know, World War II happens. So that sample is destroyed. Oh. Yeah. So... Now we fast forward to the 1970s, you know, era of disco. And you are a farmer in Queensland, Australia. And you wake up one morning and several of your cows are dead. Oh, no. This is alarming. Oh, no. It It wasn't a camel, was it? It was not a camel. Uh, There doesn't seem to be any attack or predator uh, like signs or anything. The cows look totally fine. They're just dead um so you think someone poisoned your cows so you call the police um and they called the government vet because they have a vet with the government uh who does an autopsy sense and Mm -hmm. the vet discovers this weird fruit or uh, which is really more like a large seed it's about the size of a human fist it's about uh Oh my. 3.1 inches in diameter or eight centimeters in diameter. So it's a large seed. seed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like bigger than an avocado pit. Mm hmm. Which is uh, very strange because there's uh, not really any flowering plants or seeds that are known to produce a seed that large in Australia at all. So you're like, what? Mm -hmm. Oh, that would be very weird. It'd be very weird. Uh, and it yeah. seems you have accidentally discovered a brand new species of tree. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh-huh. Wait, wait, yeah, what? Uh-huh. So what happened was this uh, farmer or this um, what ha- rancher, this yeah. rancher, this cattle farmer, um, it was re- he rediscovered that same uh, the flower. Uh, that the botanist, uh, his name was. Um, oh, I think technically uh, the cow rediscovered it. Technically the cow. Technically, I'm it. sure the indigenous Australians knew about it for many that thousands well. of years. Yes, that as well. Yes. So discovered <laughs> in Western scientists or Western <laughs> science. Um. So it was a German botanist named um, uh, Ludwig Dells. Um. And then the the government veterinarian Doug Clade, um, he sent the seeds and everything um, to a botanist, Stan Blake, and they were like, uh, "Huh, this was described by Ludwig Dells, um, but we've never seen a sample of these or anything like that. So, what is going on? Um, and how did it kill these cows dead? Because these seeds were completely whole; they weren't." really chewed or anything like that Mm. and okay they found out that these seeds of this plant were what caused the um the cows to drop dead um they have a very special uh poison on them okay uh to the point where it has well it's in them as well um, it's, it's a very, very toxic seed. 
um, it produces a neurotoxin uh, where it quite literally um, prevents you or prevents it causes um, seizures and convulsions and par- paralysis. Oh my gosh! Um, oh, wow. Because it prevents the uh, it prevents the nerves from being able to talk to each other, more or less, wow. and it it produce it kills whatever t- eats it. <laughs> so, part of the reason why in Western science this particular plant, which I am saving the name for a reason, um, okay, part of the reason why it kind of. It really wasn't known in Western science is the the tree that it comes from is nothing really special. It looks pretty generic. It has simple leaves. They look they remind me a lot of avocado leaves. Actually, they are an evergreen okay, because sure. they are found in a more um, they are a rainforest species of sorts. Um, but it, it's just not that. Um, is not that special looking at all. Uh, so what is this? Why is why am I talking about it today? So other than having this insanely um toxic seed, uh, they are also one of the oldest uh flowering plants in the world. Oh, wow. in the world. Really? Mm-hmm. Um. Cool. Like how what, how how old are we talking here? Uh, according to Australian Geographic, uh, the oldest known fossils of this tree date back 120 million years. Ooh. Oh wow! Okay. Sorry. Yeah, but I also saw some sources saying back to 88 million years. It's still pretty old. <laughs> um. Gotcha. And they really are only found now in, uh, they're really only found in one little area of Australia. They're not really found anywhere else. Um, and it, it's kind of, it's, it's really nothing, uh, special looking other than the fact that it is really, it's really old. Um, however, I want to also say, uh, it's, very fun, beautiful, common name, as well as its uh, oh. scientific name. It has a beautiful common name? Hmm. So the scientific name is Idiospernum australinese. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also known as the ribbon tree, the green dinosaur, and the idiot fruit tree. Um, okay. Because, is that because you'd be an idiot to eat it, or what? I mean, yes, you would be. But most, of, it's actually a play on its scientific name of Idiospernum australinese. Gotcha. Um, okay. And the fact that it's just one of it's a very very toxic plant. Like nothing eats it. Um, the way that it disperses wow. its seeds is it, they literally use gravity and roll down the mountainside. Um, there okay. are. Some uh, little, I think it's, um, what was it? I think it was a, oh my goodness. Oh yeah. Uh, There was like a kangaroo rat that will Mm -hmm. quite literally bury the seeds, but they don't eat them. (laughs) Um, Why? To to 
oh, well. drive off um, parasites from their burrows or something? Um, good question. No idea. Okay. Yeah, to go to the trouble to bury it. It's like, yeah. oh, this is bad. Bury this. Um, that is wild. It is very, very wild. Uh, and, and they just, because they have some uh, insects that pollinate, obviously, um, with like small beetles that do it. But sure, sure. when it comes to their dispersal, like they, they really don't get eaten uh, because if they do, they get severely poisoned. Um, yeah, the musky I mean, usually... kangaroo rat will disperse them and bury, but they don't really eat them. Usually when an animal like disperses a seed or whatever, it's to eat them. Um, right. but these guys don't. Well, that's usually the, the function of a fruit often is to attract animals to get them to eat it. So they will spread it for you and do things like eat it or bury it for later and this is bizarre mm-hmm. that you would have something that goes to the trouble of making this thing and then being like, nope, everyone mm-hmm. stay away. Like, is it mostly just a seed or is there actually, is there any, do you have any fruit, fleshy fruit around it or is it just basically a big seed that falls down? So the name, um, the fruit part is kind of not super true because it is mostly a seed because what also kind of okay. makes it strange is um, the, what fleshy part that is there actually um decays while it's still attached to the tree itself um like i said they're they're relying on grab like it's very round seed that's relying on gravity to spread rather than being a fruit that attracts yes yes that makes more sense they they we they it has been suggested that they could have been dispersed by a uh now extinct um large marsupial uh that oh right Kind of like the avocado. Kind of like the avocado, but a marsupial and Australia. Um, But we don't know for sure, obviously. Um, Wow. Yeah. I just wanted, I really just wanted to talk about the idiot fruit tree. That's all. You just saw that it was called idiot tree and you were like, oh, this, this one's for me. (laughs) Yes. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they're an evergreen and they're not tall. They're not really anything special. They have super like toxic uh, fruits. I say with quotations on a podcast and they're very old and those things are really cool. But I I also really wanted to just talk about an idiot fruit tree. (laughs) Wow. Very cool. Thanks for bringing that. Thank you. No problem. Thanks to everybody for listening today. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.